We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which will conclude our study for the time being of the book of Genesis. So we come now to Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. And this is God's holy word as he gave to Moses to record this portion of covenant history. And so we know that since it has come from God, it is infallible, it is inerrant, as he gave it to Moses. And so let us attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy, inspired and therefore inerrant word. Genesis 50, verses 22 through 26. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, It's good for us to note some themes of the book. And so uh, today the introduction part of the sermon will be longer and the exposition part will be uh, rather short, unlike most of our other sermons. But Genesis is an historical narrative, and it's important for us to note that, uh, even going back all the way to the beginning of the book in chapter 1, Uh, There are some who would like to argue that Genesis 1 is not to be believed as history. And while it may not give us particular details of how God did certain things, uh, it is presented to us as history. There are some who try to say that it's like Hebrew poetry because it's got some parallel ideas in it. Uh, God causes light on the first day, and then several days later there's the sun and the moon and the stars, and see those are parallel ideas. Uh, And the parallelism, as we noted when we studied Genesis 1 a long time ago, is is deeper than that. Uh, And so some will say, well, see, this is Hebrew poetry. The problem with that is when you read Hebrew poetry and the proclamations of prophets or in the book of Psalms or Proverbs, the parallelisms are right next to each other. They're not half a page away. It's pretty clear that uh, that Genesis 1 is presented to us as history, and indeed the entire book is. Genesis is an historical narrative. It presents an account of events from creation to about 1800 BC at least, uh, or even as late as around 1600 BC, if we were to take the short sojourn view for the time that, that Israel spent in Egypt, that is, there's a, a debate as to whether the 400 years that the Lord mentions to Abraham that his descendants uh, 
uh, would be in Egypt, or is he literally meaning that the 400 years will be that, or or is it from the time that Jacob moves to Egypt to the time of uh, of the Exodus, or is it from Abraham's time to the time of the Exodus, which would make the sojourn period a bit shorter? In Galatians 3:17, Paul says the giving of the law. In Moses' day came 430 years after the time of Abraham. And so uh, we might note that uh, looking at that at face value, that the sojourn would have to be a bit shorter. That would suggest the time in Egypt was more like 250 years or so, which also fits better with the Lord's statement to Abraham in Genesis 15:16 that the exodus would happen in the fourth generation of Israel's time in Egypt, uh, even with the extraordinary longevity of the early Israelites, uh, 400 years is more than four generations. So the book of Genesis probably ends maybe around 1600 BC. Uh, one source I have dates the death of Joseph at 1589 BC. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is concerned with uh, what many would call primeval history. They deal with the explaining of how the world we know, and particularly the world that would have been known to the Israelites in Moses' day when Moses wrote this book, how that world they knew came to be. And these chapters tell of the origin of the universe itself, including the earth and the creatures which inhabit it. They tell of the creation of mankind and of our fall into sin and misery. They tell of the consequences of sin, death, the, the flood that would come, the division of languages and nations. These are all consequences of mankind's sin. The rest of the book, chapters 12 through 50, tell of what is commonly called patriarchal history, uh, the time of the ancestors of Israel and their related nations. From Shem to Abraham, the narrowing focus uh, from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob and his sons, uh, we find this uh, sense which God is working through these fathers of the nation of Israel to bring about his sovereign plan. The early patriarchal history also tells us that God was waiting until the iniquity of the Amorites was fulfilled, that is that that the Canaanites, the peoples populating the, the land of Canaan that he intended to give to his people, he was waiting for them to get as bad as they could be before he would judge them and give the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel. Genesis tells us of covenant history, therefore. In chapter 426, we see that God's covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord, has been revealed And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men, literally then they, began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to call on Yahweh. The covenant family descended from Seth leads to Enoch, who walked with God, and to Noah, who was righteous in his generation. The knowledge of the covenant name was passed down, it seems, to Shem, Noah's son. After the flood, Shem's descendants passed the covenant name, presumably down to Abraham, who passed it to Isaac, 
and to Jacob, and thus God could say that he didn't make himself known by the name of the Lord, but called himself God Almighty to them, typically, and yet they knew the name of the Lord. They knew that name already. And so we see the scriptures saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob called on the name of the Lord. As part of that covenant history, we have seen the progressive revelation of where the Savior would come from as well. Genesis 3.15 tells us that the Savior would be the seed of the woman. Uh, Broadly speaking, this means that he, of course, has to be a descendant of Eve. He's going to be a human being. Human sinners need a human Savior. But it also hints at the virgin virgin conception and birth of Christ, as he alone of all mankind, in his human nature, can be said to be the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. By the end of the flood, it's obvious the Savior will have to be a descendant of Noah. That's a no-brainer there. uh, Only Noah and his descendants are surviving the flood. In chapter 22, verse 18, the Lord tells Abraham, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So now we know the Savior has to be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 21, 12, we learn in Isaac will Abraham's seed be named. So that narrows it to Isaac, and then it's confirmed in 26.4. The Lord says to Isaac, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then the field is further narrowed to Jacob in 24.18, or rather 28.14. When the Lord tells him, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And finally, we learn In chapter 49, verse 10, that the Savior will descend from Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. In the background of all this, and of course, as we go further through the Old Testament, we see it further and further narrowed. But leaving it it at the end of Genesis, we know the Savior has to be a descendant of Judah. And in the background of all of this is the theme of the reality of sin and death. But along with that theme comes the theme of God's grace. In particular, he works that grace outwardly through covenants, as we see. The first covenant he made with mankind was the covenant of works. And those of you who have been in the adult Sabbath school class lately will uh, recognize we've talked about a lot of these things lately. The first covenant God made was, is known as the covenant of works. If Adam obeyed, he would receive life. Hence, it's also sometimes called the covenant of life. If he disobeyed, he would receive death. When he failed, as the covenant head of our family, God revealed his covenant of grace. A seed would crush the serpent's head. The Lord would accept a substitute bearing the penalty of in his people's place, and he actually prefigures that when he clothes Adam and Eve in animal skins. They had clothed themselves in the paltry covering of fig leaves, and God gave them adequate covering. There's a good analogy in that for when we try to cover our own sins with our own good deeds. It's like putting on fig leaves, but it takes God's action to adequately cover us. And God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, and that presumes 
that an animal or animals were killed so that they might be covered. And that prefigures the notion that the death of a substitute would cover God's people. It's a picture of that for us. Through Noah, he preserved the human race and the creatures that he placed under their care, making his covenant with Noah never to destroy the earth again by flood. He graciously accounted faith as the necessary righteousness his servants lacked. Genesis 15.6, we're told of Abraham that he believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. We do not possess the righteousness we need to stand in God's holy presence and God here reveals in the early chapters of the Bible that he counts faith, belief, in his word in particular, that if he says something is true, that makes it true. And Abraham believed when God told him something that would be hard for man to believe, that you, an old man, will have so many descendants, even though you have no children right now, you will have so many descendants, it will be like the stars in the sky at nighttime that you won't be able to count them. And Abraham believed God, and God counted that to him for righteousness. He would extend this grace to Abraham's children. In chapter 17, verse 4, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. That would include not only the nations, many people groups that descend bodily from Abraham, but also the believers from every nation. 22.18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then we are told in Galatians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Lord graciously revealed himself when he came as his own messenger at several points in the book of Genesis. The angel of the Lord who interacted with Abraham and even wrestled with Jacob. And we noted at that time because of things that are stated, for example, in John chapter 1, that no one has ever seen God. So in God's divine nature, you can't see him, but the only son makes him known. So we would understand that when God appears as a man in these old covenant scriptures, that that is particularly God the son comes. So you want to know who wrestled with Jacob? It was Jesus before he was born as Jesus, but it was Jesus. And he revealed his Savior through typology in this book. Images of Christ ahead of time. Noah was a picture of Christ. A preacher of righteousness through whom sinners were saved from the just wrath of God against their sins. Even the ark itself and the door in the ark were pictures of Christ. Only through Christ may we enter into salvation and be preserved from the wrath to come. We saw Judah foreshadow his great descendant when he volunteered to take the punishment of another in his place. But no one in Genesis typifies Christ more than Joseph. Just to mention a few things that we've seen wherein Joseph foreshadowed Christ. He was loved by his father, sent to his brethren, rejected by them, sold for the price of a slave, His garment 
taken from him. He's tempted but did not succumb to the temptation, accused falsely, punished for a crime he didn't commit, placed with two prisoners, one of whom is condemned and the other who is saved. He's raised to a status second only to the most powerful in his context. As Joseph became second to Pharaoh, Christ in his human nature has ascended to heaven and been exalted to a position above everything and everyone but God. So as God, Jesus is above all things. In his human nature, he's just below that. He models forgiveness, Joseph does. He saves his family as Christ saves his. What men meant for evil against him, as we saw last week, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many. In Joseph's case, it was salvation from a famine in particular. In Jesus' case, what men meant for evil against him to get rid of him, God meant for good that he would bring about the eternal salvation of his people. Now, overarching all of these themes of Genesis, the ones we've talked about and many that we don't have time to talk about this morning, is that of the sovereignty of God. Probably the main theme of Genesis is the sovereignty of God. From the moment he sovereignly declared, let there be light, and light came into being, his sovereign power over all things has been displayed. Because he is both sovereign and good, because we've also seen his goodness displayed in his grace so many times in this book, we know, therefore, God is faithful. He is sovereign, so he can do anything he wants. He's good, so he intends good, which means that he will bring it about. If God says he's going to do something, God will do it. Joseph declared to his brothers, we saw last time, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Notice how God is sovereign in that. They made their own choices. They uh, didn't think that morning, you know, here comes Joseph. Wouldn't it be nice if we served God by selling him into slavery and then all this would work out for us in the end? They didn't know any of that. They had their own sinful reasons for doing what they did, but God used their sin sinlessly for his good plan. His sovereignty displayed in his faithfulness is a major theme of the book of Genesis. In today's passage, Joseph shows his trust in the Lord to be faithful as he approaches his death. Again, we see that theme of death all the way from chapter 3 until now. So many times in Scripture in chapter 5, It was reiterated, and he died, and he died, and he died, except for Enoch, who was taken. He walked with the Lord, and he was not, for the Lord took him. But even righteous men died. For death came upon us because of our condition of sin. And here is the same with Joseph. Joseph is coming to the end of his earthly life. And Moses tells us, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. The Lord had preserved Israel as he promised. He'd sheltered them in Egypt. The Lord faithfully blessed Joseph. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. 
if by the way the Lord's word to to Abraham that they would be in Egypt for four generations uh, is to be understood that that's the whole period of their time in Egypt of the sojourn. That means that the children who were alive when Joseph died, when they were old, were leaving in the Exodus and could have even remembered seeing Joseph in their youth. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. They were told, and Joseph said to his brothers, so meaning his kinsmen, the people of Israel, this is what Moses tells us next, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice that's the same faith that Abraham had, isn't it? God said it, so it will happen. And Joseph believes God, and so just as it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, this is reckoned to Joseph as righteousness. He is justified through faith. Moses tells us, Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And much as Jacob had taken an oath from Joseph and then from his other brothers, commanded them, take me to Canaan and bury me there. Joseph says, you shall do that. Now, he doesn't demand that it happen immediately. And what we will see is that it will happen later when the exodus occurs. Before his death, though, Joseph is enjoining the Israelites to carry his bones to the promised land. We see the first evidence of their intention to follow through with that in verse 26 so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt remember they had embalmed Jacob as well and we noted back then that this was not the norm for Israelites for Hebrews prior to Jacob's day or after but in this case it's showing an intention to preserve the body so that we can take it on this long journey in Exodus 13:19 we find and Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath saying God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you they were carrying out their oath as another of the minor themes that we saw here in this book the importance of keeping our word then in Joshua 24:32 we read The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem. Israel kept its word. Joseph laid the Israelites under this oath because he knew the Lord would accomplish what he had promised. So Hebrews 11.22, as we read earlier, says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Like his father at his death, Joseph was thinking covenantally. Generations to come would see the faithfulness of the Lord when they saw that Joseph was indeed buried in the land of Canaan. God had promised that they would be planted in that land, that he would take them out of Egypt The Israelites wouldn't have to go to Egypt to find either Jacob's or Joseph's tomb. 
they would see it right in their midst and they would know God kept his word to those men. We also see perhaps a hint at the notion of resurrection that that they understood that when they rose up at the last day, they might want to be in the land that God had promised to give to them. But certainly we notice that they're thinking covenantally, they're thinking generationally. What will my descendants, what will the people of God who come after me think? How will they benefit from me? How can I be a benefit to them even though I am dead? Joseph saw that generations to come would be able to see that God is faithful if he were buried in the land of Canaan. That only happened because God kept his word to give that land to Jacob's descendants. So our application from this, as we note what the Lord has done in his faithfulness, is just simply this, trust the Lord. If God says something, it is true. If God tells us something, it is a fact. And he has given us a written word, testified to by miracles, so we know it's not just someone's guesswork. It's not just a feeling that I have or that you might have. This is the written word of God. It is the testimony of the Lord. You can believe it. He is sovereign. And so he's capable of accomplishing anything that he says he will accomplish, anything that he intends. And he is good. So he will always intend to do what he has promised. That is, in fact, biblical faith. When we hear that God says something and we believe it. Particularly when we see that God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ and we therefore trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation alone. That is saving faith. God promises to be good to his people. And we can believe that. He promises that Christ will return. And we can believe that. Why? Because he is a faithful God. Because he is both sovereign and good, he will keep every promise. So trust in Him. If you have any trouble trusting the Lord, there are people who have a hard time, for example, believing the miracles of Scripture. We were talking about this a little bit in Sabbath school this morning as well. There are people who have a hard time believing the miracles recorded in Scripture, some of the extraordinary events of Scripture. And they will say, nevertheless, I can understand these things to be teaching themes to be teaching ideas that I don't have to believe the historicity of the Bible uh, in order to believe the things that they're pointing to. Well, of course, number one, we would have to ask, well, why would you believe the things that the Bible is teaching, the greater themes behind what the Bible says, if the facts that it presents to you are are incorrect? That would be illogical. But we shouldn't have any trouble believing in any miracle recorded in Scripture. If you can believe verse 1 of Genesis, then you shouldn't have any problem with anything else. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
God made everything out of nothing. He can do whatever he wants with the things he's created. As I've put it before, if he created everything out of nothing, he can do anything with something. So can you believe that an axe head can float on water? I don't have a problem believing that, because God can do that. If he can make everything out of nothing, he can certainly make that happen. Can he part the Red Sea? No problem. I don't need to to believe that this is just a folk tale about uh, a wind that blew across a swamp or something and made the water a little shallower. No, this is a sea parting. I don't have a problem with that because God made everything out of nothing. He can certainly do what he wants with the Red Sea. Can he make the dead live? No problem. He created life in the first place. Nothing is impossible with God. And because nothing is impossible with Him, and because nothing good is beyond Him, because He never intends evil for His people, we know that the Lord is faithful. He can be trusted. And so trust the Lord. Let's pray. O covenant Lord, build up our faith as we reflect on the fact that you are both sovereign and good. Therefore, we can know that you are a faithful God to accomplish all things that you have promised and that you intend for your people. And we pray these things in the name of the one who indeed has fulfilled your promises. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.